Consequence Podcast Network. Borahoy Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Hello, Opus listener. This is Mijan Zulu, lead podcast producer at Consequence. I'm here today in celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. To celebrate, we're opening up the Opus podcast archives to re-release seasons focused on some of history's most legendary rap albums. First up, we are going to revisit Fuji's classic The Score, which comes in at number 15 on Consequence's list of the 50 greatest hip-hop albums of all time. You can see the full list at Consequence, and there'll be loads of artist interviews, essays, and more coming out throughout the month. So make sure to check it all out at Consequence.net. You can also snag some of our exclusive hip-hop merch at the Consequence shop. You can find that at shop.consequence.net. And here on The Opus, we're going to keep the party going as we'll be re-releasing episodes about Cypress Hill's self-titled record. So make sure to check back here every Wednesday and Friday for fresh episodes from the archives. Now, let's dive into Fuji's The Score and a happy hip-hop 50th. In April of 1997, MTV aired a Fuji's concert live from Haiti and sent a news crew down to document the whole thing. The event drew a crowd of about 65,000, including the approximately 5,000 people who hopped a fence and took over the best seats that were reserved for dignitaries. See, tickets for the show were between about 3 and $9 American. But at a time when Haiti's daily minimum wage was $2.75, it still wasn't affordable to everyone. So sometimes gate crashing is just the move you got to pull, you know? Uh, we want to thank y'all for the best group. Uh, I'm White Club. El Boogie up in here. And I'm Proz. And we live in Haiti. Haiti hey, makes some noise. noise. <laughs> yes, yes, y'all. Yes, and it don't so. stop. Right. From the time Wyclef Jean began strumming the opening chords of Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry, which the group covered on side two of the score, it was a night for Haitians to celebrate their culture and their identity. The Fugees were always proud to acknowledge their roots, and Wyclef took it one step further, rapping and singing and joking with the crowd in Creole. Events like this one were not common in Haiti in the 1990s. For almost 30 years, right up until 1986, the country was under the extraordinarily corrupt Duvalier dictatorship. And Haiti was mostly noted in the international media for its poverty and political violence, which is really unfortunate. Haiti has a rich art tradition, too. 
and people like the Fugees had been championing Haitian music in America and abroad their entire careers. So this concert was a major musical and emotional event for Wyclef Jean and his cousin Pras Michel, both the sons of Haitian families. A year after the score sold its way into millions of hands, and just a couple of months after the Fugees took home two Grammys, they brought their entire live experience to Haiti's capital city of Port-au-Prince to headline a benefit concert. The Coming Home concert didn't raise the money it sought out to, but it did signal to the group that even though they'd conquered the world with a multi-million selling album, that they hadn't truly arrived until just then. For this episode, I've talked to some of the group's family, friends, and fans about Haiti's effect on the Fugees and the Fugees' effect on Haiti, on Haitians, and their fans who saw their own American immigrant and refugee experiences reflected back at them. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. Anale. You know who's having an awesome year? John Batiste. In just the past year, He's won a Golden Globe, a BAFTA, and an Academy Award. He's been nominated for two Grammys, and he's released both his seventh and eighth studio albums. And somehow, in the middle of all of that, he took the time to talk to me about the Fugees. That's how much he loves them. John Batiste is a peach. Throughout his career, John's worked with each of the members of the Fugees separately, but he started out as a fan of their work long before that. One of the many reasons he was, and still is a fan, is because this group spoke to him on a cultural level. And that cultural pride and experience made itself known when John and Wyclef met and began working together. Wyclef's thing is that he comes from a church family, a Haitian family. I relate to him and his heritage because I'm from New Orleans and I'm from a family of musicians and I'm from a culture of music and culture of, of, of dance and food and all these different ways that black culture, black diaspora cultures enmeshed in everyday life. Ooh, okay, so now I think is a good time to give a brief definition of the African or black diaspora. It's the worldwide collection of communities descended from native Africans or people from Africa. We use the term most commonly in reference to the descendants of the West and Central Africans who were enslaved and shipped to the Americas via the Atlantic slave trade between the 16th and 19th centuries. The countries with their largest populations of the diaspora are Brazil, 
the United States, and Haiti. He and I, when we start to, to, to work, it's just like we can play and go and do these unspoken references. And, and, and he'll reference something, and he'll be like, oh that's, that, oh, that's cool. That's like the thing they played in my granddaddy church. But he'll start playing it, and he won't say that verbally. He'll just go into a groove based on the groove that I was playing, which is something that I heard growing up when we would play with, uh, with, with Trombone Shorty in, in the barrooms in Maple Leaf Bar or in, like, <laughs> Cafe Brazil or Sweet Lorraine's. And then this is a groove. This is a club groove that we'll play to get the people dancing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or oh, this is a groove that they'll play in my granddaddy church. <laughs> this is a groove. <laughs> and oh, this is a rhythm. Oh, this is a song that we used to play in the second lines. Oh, well, that's like a hymn we used to sing on the street in Haiti in the rah-rah tradition. And I'm just like, we, we had... I think we had a few jam sessions like that where I realized, oh, we're talking without saying anything. That there's a connection without having to say much that is rooted in our lineage and how much that is a part of our music making, even if it's not on the surface, even if you don't hear it right away. There's so much black diasporic lineage that goes all the way back to Africa. The Fuji's wore their lineage on their sleeves, and sometimes on their heads. At their live shows, and at the Grammys, and at this concert in Port-au-Prince, Wyclef would appear on stage with the Haitian flag wrapped around his body. To begin the homecoming concert, he laid down a stick of sugar cane and chopped it to pieces with a machete, beginning the evening with a reference to the thousands of Haitians who migrate each year to neighboring countries to harvest sugar. The name the group chose even evolved from this pride, from this experience of migration, the refugee experience. Jerry Wanda, who started the famous Booga Basement recording studio with his brother and his cousins, Wyclef and Praz, remind us where the Fugees came from. You have the, the Haitian, the Jamaican, the American. We all of us was in one, one, one space, and that's where the refugee name came from, and the, the, the Fugees short for refugees. Chris Schwartz of Roughhouse Records elaborates and offers a bit more context into this process of choosing a name. We started out, they were called the Rap Translators. Then they were the Translator Crew. And couldn't use that name because uh, there was a rock group called Translator who, by this time, these guys, I guess, were in their 40s, early 50s, and they were talking about getting back together again. So (laughs) so then then (laughs) they uh, became the refugees, and then they just changed it to the Fuji. So, but that was kind of their thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you listen to the first record, and then you listen to the video for Ready or Not is touching on that a little bit. So, you know, and, and I think that Clef and Praz really wanted to kind of promote, you know, because look, there's a, you know, among, you know, Haitians always had a tough time. You know, Amer- you know African-Americans looked at in certain areas, they looked at Haitians as being on a, on a social level lower. And, and, you know, there's a skit on the first record where 
you know, you have these girls, you know, talking about mm. the fact that Praz is Haitian and everything. So I think that was always important to them. And I think that comes through. You a lot of time around the school, you know. Really? Yeah, I've been winning, I've been meaning, you know, get your number and your name, stuff like that to get to know. Mm -hmm. Hey, yo, Kim, ain't he Haitian? To the group's fans in the United States, some of whom were immigrants or first-generation Americans, that representation was something they'd not seen before, really, in hip-hop. In reggae, sure. In dancehall, yeah. But not so much in hip-hop. Domati Pongo is a correspondent for MTV News and the host of the network's True Life Crime. He's much too young to have been on staff there in the 90s, but he was watching a lot of MTV. And the Fugees helped teach him a bit more about what immigrants, like his parents, had gone through. I had to ask my sister, what, what's, what does Fugees mean? She's like, refugees. And I'm like, well, what is a refugee? You know, you know refugees, somebody who escapes a country and finds refuge in a new place. Well, why did they name themselves the refugees? So now I'm having a conversation with Big Sis about immigration, migration, and, you know, the conditions back home in Ghana, in yeah. third world countries, and, and, and all parts of that the diaspora, only spurred from the name of the group, you know? And so I think that those conversations we were having in hip hop at the time was part of kind of a, a new awakening. And it was part and parcel with where things were going in hip hop with the backpack era, with the Black Fist stuff, the emergence of Malcolm X, uh, hats, you know, and, and the fashion, the dashikis coming back, Spike Lee and the way he celebrated blackness in his films. There was, in that time, this cultural awareness, almost like what we're seeing today. Yeah. You know, time, everything repeats itself. Uh, but it was happening right there in the group. And I think the Fugees wore it not as a, like you said, it was, it was baked in and it wasn't a novelty. It wasn't a gimmick. It was like, no, this is really where we're from and we're wearing that. We're repping that. Similar sentiments are held by Insanio Ahmed. He's the executive editor at Genius. I, I'm not Haitian, I'm from Bangladesh, but even for me, the fact that they call themselves the refugees had a lot of appeal to me, and I think to a lot of other immigrant communities, regardless of where they were from, just because, yeah, it was clear that Wyclef and Prost, they were immigrants, you know, regardless of what they represent. And from, even for me as a kid, that had a certain appeal, like that was uh, a thing because I had never heard the term ref like a Fuji, but they call themselves the refugees. I didn't know what a refugee was. And even as a kid, I thought like a refugee was just like synonymous with being an immigrant, but I guess a particular type of immigrant. Mm -hmm. But I definitely think seeing people wave the flag, seeing people, you know, seeing an artist who's really big, you know, represent for where they're from is always going to resonate with the immediate community. But like I said, even as somebody who's not from that community, but as an immigrant, that you still identify with that. And that, that definitely appeals to me. The Fugees, with two Haitian members and with Lauren Hill, who said in interviews in the 90s that she was 
Haitian by association, were very deliberate in the showcasing of their homeland. In the wake of the score, when the eyes and the ears of the world were on them, it was the kind of exposure to the island and to Caribbean culture that hip-hop fans perhaps didn't really know they needed. This respect paid to their heritage brought them a respect from legends in reggae who saw the Fujis as the authentic bearers of the culture that they were. Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare, known professionally as Sly and Robbie, are a Grammy Award-winning and iconic rhythm section and production duo from Jamaica. In the 90s, they were working in mostly the dance hall realm, and it made sense for them to get their hands on a Fuji single to give it a little razzle-dazzle. The Sly and Robbie remix of Fuji La was included as a bonus track on CD versions of the score. And the video for the single was even filmed in Jamaica, with the group even looking to recreate Jimmy Cliff's 1972 film, The Harder They Come. And their love for the genre made the decision to work on the remix an easy one for Sly. They were so odd, they didn't, they didn't have to come to reggae. Yeah. They didn't need it, understand? Yeah. But for when, when they were hot, not when they got cold, when they were hot, 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 they came to the reggae. I mean, you know, I have to give them a lot of credit for that. that they showed a lot of respect for the music, you know. When they came to the reggae, they kind of boost reggae a bit more into the hip-hop market, you know. Because this was an artist group. Yeah. You know, they are involved with reggae. They're flying to Jamaica and doing stuff with remixes with, with Bob Marley, stuff on it. So they, they, they doing that, put reggae in the, in the, in the marketplace. In that hip hop marketplace, that's something to people to check out, you know. Yeah. And the thing is, the uh, reggae star gets a lot, lot more respect from the rappers, you know. With the international Sly and Robbie on the hardcore reggae beat, now my selector, come now! Can I feel the vibe? Can I feel the vibe? We used to be number 10. Permanent at one, why clap preachers on Ichibang? Listen, this is tin can of your candy handy man. Me without shoes like American without the pants. Stand, cool fellow, dance hall, stay mellow. All that gun talk, who would have thought you die yellow? Damn, another hero wanna be. Now he sleeps with his friends in the mortuary. Dude, the Fuji's dedication to helping Haiti and raising awareness of the island and its people was super important to the perception of it in mainstream American media. At the time, almost every family there had lost members in the exodus of thousands, hundreds of thousands, of people fleeing the hemisphere's poorest nation for the United States. In the decade prior to the Coming Home concert, tens of thousands of people had died at sea. And aside from the dictatorship, not many Americans knew that much more about Haiti than the poverty and the problems that came with it. And Jerry Wanda just wouldn't stand for it. There was a movie that came out where they said, you know, and um, where they said Haitian had brought the AIDS to America. And, you know, you couldn't say you were Haitian. Mm-hmm. When the one thing we make sure uh, we did, which was, you know, big shout out to to Lauren Hill, that was really the to the rest, and you know, you have pros that was born in Brooklyn, but background Haitians, you know. Mm-hmm. So 
So Wyclef, Wyclef mom and my dad's are brothers and sisters. So Clef and I, we grew up, we basically grew up in, you know, and we live in a church. Uh, Wyclef dad was the pastor and we live in that church. So in our church, we have different culture. We have the American, we have the Haitians, we got the, everyone was coming to our church. So our goal was like, okay, how do we speak? We was like, yo, we're going to stand up. We have to say, there was no lie to say that we we proud to be Haitian. We had to. We had to say we proud to be Haitian. We have to stand up for the Haitians because the Haitians was getting beat up. I was saying all the a lot of things about the Haitians. And I remember when, when it was the Grammy time and Wycliffe told the road manager, I don't care what you do, please. We have to find a Haitian flag. Think about it. We in L.A. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, my yo, the manager brother Hassan said, "How do I find a Haitian flag?" Like, no, we got yo. He basically found. That's why I tell you, man. I tell artists, you need to have a great team. When you have a great team, you get everything you want. There's no me, me. It's us. Yo, they basically brother Hassan was able to found a Haitian flag, and when went up there, that after that flag, oh my god. The next day, everybody was so proud. The Haitians, what if we're in Haitian back? They're going, I'm Haitian. I'm Haitian too. I'm Haitian. I'm Haitian too. I'm Haitian. Yep. The island was as proud of the Fujis as the Fujis were proud of it. And while the relationship between the two entities in the decades since have been complicated to say the least, the original motivation behind this symbiosis came from a place of pure love. I was born there, you know. I, I used to be one of them little kids naked, running around in the sand, playing around. So it's kind of cool. So I feel when they see me and they see what I've accomplished, they're going to be like, yo, we could do it too. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this has been The Opus. I'll see you next time. Today is dead season for Akonis MC murdering. Call Mr. Martin, tell him to build a coffin. Today is dead season, 100 MCs are go murdering. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steyer-Blondie. This is Roland Olsabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like ska name three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Scott. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Scott from the Consequence Podcast Network.